Hi, and welcome to MentorCore. If you're new here, we're a community focused on helping people in the security, risk, and compliance fields grow their careers and leadership skills through mentoring. You can find more information about MentorCore at mentorcore.biz. I'm Dan Ayala, along with Lisa Beth Lentini Walker. Now, on to this week's discussion. Everyone, uh, today we are talking with Gwen Lee Hassan, who I personally enjoy very much. She's an incredible resource. <laughs> She's an incredible person, um, and we're going to be talking about all things compliance, ethics, and we're even going to get into a little bit of human trafficking. Um, so, well, that's a good tease, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it is. I mean, woo! Like no time like the present to talk about what's going on with humans. Um, so thanks for joining us, Gwen. We're, we're thrilled to have you here today. Thank you very much, Lisa Beth. I always enjoy talking to you and I feel like I maybe should write you a check for <laughs> the lovely things that you say about me. That's so kind. I appreciate it very much. Well, um, all very heartfelt. So let's kick us off. Um, how did you get into this profession that you're in? Like, tell us more. Sure, sure. Um, so I had a weird route to, to compliance. It's not something, um, it's not like I woke up one day and said, you know, I think I'm going to be a compliance person. Um, I actually, I, you know, when I, when I was a younger person, younger, very much younger person, I had great aspirations to be on the stage. I thought, you know, my place is going to be on Broadway. I'm going to sing and dance my little heart out. Um, and you can still find me doing that at home, annoying my children on a regular basis, but I can, uh, I, I can relate to that. <laughs> but ultimately, um, so I went to, to undergrad and got a communications degree and um, launched a career in kind of PR and marketing and uh, decided that was, you know, as close as I was going to get uh, to, to performing. And I still got to do, you know, the choirs on the side and, and a few things. But suddenly, out of the blue, I had one of those, you know, life-changing experiences happen to our family. Um, my mom was in a freak accident, and she was thrown from a golf cart and uh, landed on her head after the cart flipped and rolled down an embankment. And she ended up severely uh, injured, brain damaged, and it was because of a series of compliance failures. And my family became, of course, deeply engrossed in, in helping her recover, um, which she never fully did, by the way. But, um, you know, she had to go through rehab and, and months in a rehab facility. And we ultimately ended up in litigation, which then kind of for the first time sparked in me an interest in going to law school and, and getting involved in compliance. So uh, a circuitous route, for sure. But that is how I, I ended up pursuing this career. Um, started out, you know, as many people do with, you know, a, a catch-all job, which is, oh, everything that the other attorneys don't want to do, we'll give to Gwen, because I was young um, and inexperienced. But through that process, got to kind of um, find my way towards things I was passionate about over time. And that led me to where I am today. So there's the story. Wow. What a powerful why in terms yeah. of like what drives you in this profession? Very, um, something I did not, of course, want, uh, did not expect, but now I look back on and 
uh, it's, you know, I'm a little, little bit of a fatalist and it's one of those things where I think, okay, it makes sense now. Um, because if that had not happened, my life would have been entirely different than it is now. So um, it, it served as a catalyst for me and for the rest of my family in many ways. Well, it sounds like you took a great path based on, you know, based on a, a on a, you know, on a, an incident in your life. Um, and as somebody who's who's adjacent to compliance and also not an attorney. The question I have regularly is which came first in your mind, the attorney or the compliance? Um, and how does that play out today now that you're in the field? You know, we have many people ask, I need to be an attorney to be in compliance. Yeah. So you know, now that you can look back on it, how does that play out? So for me, uh, I'll say that being an attorney was the kind of the tool set that got me to compliance um, because of course I'm old <laughs> or comparatively old, which means when I started legal practice, there wasn't really compliance practice. I mean, I've been a lawyer for 25 years and, and a, a pure compliance practice was almost unheard of then. Um, you know, if we look at some of the professional organizations that are now getting to a place where they're 15 years old and 16 years old. I mean, it, it were, we were at the very beginning of that profession, of our profession in compliance back in the 90s when I started practicing law. So it became a way for me to use the, the skill set that I had uh, and, and continually, uh, I guess, adjust, <laughs> I continually steer back as much as I could towards compliance over and over because it was something that I was really passionate about. So did I do a bunch of contract review? Yes. Did I handle a bunch of employment law issues? Absolutely. But as I gained more kind of seniority and more experience and more expertise, I was able to start kind of issue spotting and raising my hand and saying, hey, I don't know if you've realized, but you have this risk that is compliance related and I'd like to tackle that. And did you know that this new regulation has just come out and it's really a gap for this organization? And why don't I you know, jump in and do that? So it, it was a process of continually leveraging the, the base skill set that I had but reaching for opportunity to draw compliance in. Um, so that was my pathway, but I don't think it's everyone's. And I do not think you need to be a lawyer to be a, a compliance professional at all. Um, in fact, some of the best compliance professionals I know are not lawyers mm -hmm. um, because they have a different view uh, and a different lens through which they look at compliance problems uh, and not to be like, you know, all full of myself, but I've met a lot of attorneys who are not like me, who have very much a legal focus and mm -hmm. they're very kind of ivory tower, you know, and they, they, they view the world through what, ex, you know, absolute hundred percent compliance with a regulation should look like, which is not at all possible in most companies and most organizations. So it takes actually a, a special kind of lawyer to be able to kind of set aside a lot of their legal training to act as a good compliance person. So no, I don't think one is a prerequisite for the other. It just happened to be my path. That's funny you say that because Lisa Beth and I earlier today, we were talking about the line and the blurriness of line based on curtain, uh, based on some recent um, you know, court verdicts uh, mm. that it is not, it is not black and white. It is not binary. So yeah. very interesting. Thank you. I was, it also can be a really um, treacherous line to walk if you're an attorney, because 
you have to be very careful about when you're an attorney and when you're not oh, yeah. uh, and when you're operating that way. The example that pops to mind immediately is, is all of the, the coverage on Activision Blizzard and their chief compliance officer, who was also an attorney and I think forgot that she was chief compliance officer, or at least didn't act very compliance officer-like in a number of her written statements and her Twitter positions. And she was taking a very hardline legal stance that was entirely, in my opinion, inconsistent with being a good compliance officer. So it can be a, a very difficult line to walk for a lot of people. So let's kind of shift gears here because I know one of the areas that you have dedicated a lot of time and attention to, I saw you came out with an article today, I did. Um, <laughs> is human trafficking and the scourge of human trafficking. Um, talk to us a little bit about um, what sparked your interest in this and also what some of your big projects are around uh, this topic because I think there's a lot to share here. <laughs> sure. Uh, so this is, again, one of those things I just kind of fell into. Um, and by that, I mean, I'm a member of a local group here in Chicago called CR Ben, the Chicago Regional Business Ethics Network. And they have regular meetings. It's hosted by the University of Illinois at Chicago um, on different topics related to ethical business practice. And a number of years ago, I attended a session that was uh, the the, the guest was the founder and CEO of the Mekong Club, a man named Matt Friedman. And he told his personal story about how he came to become involved in, in human trafficking prevention, specifically the trafficking of children into prostitution in Asia. Uh, and it was just heartbreaking. Um, and at the time that I first heard him, uh, my daughter was, you know, in, in her early teens and was very young. And there was something about, you know, the stories that he was telling about girls who were the same age as mine that really just horrified me to an extent I, I hadn't experienced before. Because I started imagining, oh, my God, what, what would it be like to have my daughter, Hannah, stolen from me and, and trafficked into prostitution at the age of 11? And the, the just terror that that struck in me was a real, again, catalyst for me to do something. Um, I didn't know what though, you know, I kept thinking, well, I'm not in Asia, I'm here in Chicago and I'm practicing law and raising children and I don't know what I can do. Um, so I started seeing opportunity again through identification of risk. That's been kind of a recurrent theme in my career, which is, uh, this is something I'm passionate about. How can I bring it into my compliance practice? Where is there an opportunity to leverage what I'm doing to get something else done that I feel extra passionate about? And it was in that kind of uh, category where I started realizing, hey, you know, corporations are spending a lot of money in their supply chains and they are often subcontracting to subcontractors who subcontract to a subcontractor and it's you know 15 steps back and they don't realize that they are inadvertently supporting human trafficking um, especially in the forced labor category but um, also at the time one of the companies that I worked for had a big government contracting and military practice and new rules came out around um, the payment of or the use of, of contract funds for what were termed commercial sex acts under the, the FAR and the DFAR. 
the Defense Federal Acquisition Regulations. And so I found myself conducting training on what a commercial sex act was <laughs> for people working on federal government contracts for the Department of Defense. So that kind of over time morphed into learning as much as I could about supply chains and supply chain integrity and the risk that corporations face of human trafficking based on their particular you know, product area and their geographies and their market and their size and their controls. And, and now, um, as Lisabeth knows, I found myself uh, unemployed last year. Uh, my position was eliminated and a mentor of mine um, called me up and said, hey, you know, what are you going to do with all your free time? And I said, well, I'm going to look for a job. And he said, well, you know what else you could do? You could start a podcast. And I said, I, I don't know how to do a podcast. And he said, it's not a big deal. Gwen, you just talk. You great. You, you speak all the time. You're good at speaking. You should do a podcast on this issue and educate corporate compliance professionals about human trafficking and what they can do, how they can join the fight, how they can prevent it in their own supply chains. And I thought, well, you know, I could give it a shot. I guess I, I don't, not really sure what I'm doing, uh, but he encouraged me to do so. And that led to, I think Lisa, Beth, what you were referring to my, my podcast, which is now uh, it's entitled Hidden Traffic. And it is specifically designed for compliance professionals to learn more about human trafficking prevention and the regulations surrounding it. Um, the risks, how to run a risk assessment related to it, how human trafficking overlaps with other areas uh, within a company's you know, operations, like their import and export and customs um, risks, how they can um, create a program to prevent it. So that, that, is, that is my new, my, my current uh, project in this area, in addition, of course, to the article you mentioned earlier, which came out today too. So. Great. And we've got links to the podcast and to the, uh, and to the article, as well as the um, CR Ben in the show notes. So if you're oh, listening or watching, you. please look down in the description and you can find links to all of them directly. Excellent. Good. We'll get some more listeners for, for both podcasts. That would be nice. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, you have been through a lot during um, your life, you know, whether it's the stress of um, having a parent who has additional support needs, etc. What do you do to keep well being in mind as part of your, um, you know, your your life plan? Yeah, that's, you know, it's interesting, you would mention that because the ironically, um, in one of those, it wasn't what I wanted, but it turned out to be a great thing categories, um, which also seems to be kind of a theme in my life. Um, being laid off from my job, having my position eliminated gave me a lot of time um, over the last six months or so to, to give some thought to that and to realize, you know, I haven't been prioritizing my own well-being uh, very well. And that was a, an opportunity for me to kind of reestablish uh, a focus on taking care of myself. Um, someone once told me the, you know, the age old, age old adage, you can't pour from an empty cup. Um, but I managed to do so for a very long time. <laughs> and I, I didn't do myself or for that matter, the people around me, probably the best service that I could, because I wasn't, you know, prioritizing kind of replenishing myself, rest, um, all of those, you know, self-care things. So, 
within the last six months, I have um, now added a, a number of things to my daily regimen. I used to, as a as a child and as a young adult, I journaled constantly, and I've gotten away from it over the last few years. So um, I restarted my journaling practice, um, and I've now added a daily meditation practice, which I now love. Uh, it started rough, I will tell you. I think <laughs> I had a real misconception about what meditation was supposed to be like you know you hear people say that you should empty your mind and i thought well that is not possible right uh, <laughs> right and i now understand that that's not the goal but the the goal is is to to quiet it and to notice it and to pay attention to it and to um to let it you know kind of flow within you so but that daily meditation practice has been uh, a real gift to myself over the last few months and something that i now Will carry forward with me for sure. The journaling is a, a really interesting one, and so many people I know that have found it, myself included, have really uh, taken benefit in it. Mike, just out of curiosity, have you found yourself going back to old journals uh, to, to 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 reflect and and just put things in context? Because it seems to be yes. two camps of people: those that absolutely do, and those that never do. I absolutely do. Um, I have, and my journaling practice is. Um, I mean. I don't want to bore you with details, but it's kind of all over the place. And it, it, there's no set um, kind of uh, prescribed content for my journals. So some days I'll write about, you know, a new idea I had related to compliance. Um, some days I'll write about a frustration in parenting. Some days I write about kind of an insight I had related to my childhood. And it varies all over the board. So um, I definitely go back and review them. And it's, <laughs> it's a very gratifying practice for me because I think it happens to a lot of people, but I, when you're, when you're so close to your own life and you have a set of goals that you've set for yourself and you, they feel like they're miles away and the progress seems tiny and you're making, you know, little baby steps towards your, your progress. When you journal, and you can pull up a journal from two years ago and, and read through a section of it. It immediately, for me, gives me a huge amount of perspective in terms of how far I have come. Um, things I have tackled, things I've solved, uh, my, my perseverance and my, um, I don't know, my, my wherewithal um, just, just to work through things. And it gives me a new level of kind of self-compassion and gratitude um for the people in my life and for myself um not to sound all self-congratulatory but there's many times when i look back at my journal and think you know dang gwen you're awesome look at that uh so Good. it's a really helpful practice for me for sure i keep equating i hear it i've heard it equated to and i like this is it puts you back in the day almost like you know how smells will put yeah. you back in a situation. Reading a journal will put you back deep into the context of that day and be able to remember things in ways that you weren't able to and to things you've either blocked or forgotten or conveniently forgotten. Conveniently. Um, but it really does. It's amazing perspective. It is. Um, it's the closest thing to time travel that I have found, which uh, you know is an unusual way to look at it. But I have my first journal dates back to when I was 11. Uh, and I have journals, you know, with, with some significant years of gap in the middle, but I have journals that span 11 until, you know, now in my early fifties. So it's, uh, it's fascinating. So I might, I might write a book at some point. 
I got oh, I would highly well, recommend you, it. And you've got the evidence to, but you've got the story evidence to back it. That's I've great. I've got a lot of content hanging around my house. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I um, I I I used to journal a lot when I was younger, and I actually like have. I, I go back and I look at them every once in a while because I put in like tickets from concerts and like, you know, wristbands from whatever. And it's, you know, really cool to look at that stuff, like old airplane tickets with that matrix. And like, I mean, like it was, <laughs> right. That yeah. was, it was, it, it's got some interesting artifacts in there. I'm sure my children will find them interesting one day too. I am sure. Yes, absolutely. I've actually turned my, my younger journals over um they're they're publicly displayed in a in a shelf uh you know in the in our family room and my my kids have read them which uh i think is great because it gives them a perspective on their mom as as a teen and what she was like and what she struggled with and it's it's been good i think for them to see me as a person and not just as a mom which is you know a trap many people fall into as parents Although those are all the reasons why I was glad there was no social media when I was that age. I don't know about that. <laughs> That's, I mean, well, I, I, congratulations. That's a wonderful thing to do for your kids um, to be able to give them I that did, context. I, I did omit a number of things from the journal. I mean, you won't hear about the night I got picked up for TPing a friend's house. That's not in the journal there. I mean, there's some things that are conveniently missing from the by journal. today's standards that's still quite tame it is yes i'm i'm very very glad of that for sure good well before before we um before we uh indict you on other uh <laughs> on other past misdemeanors and crimes uh we're gonna unfortunately we're running out of time already um but we want to close up with uh with a question we ask all of our guests because mentoring and growth is such a part of mentor core we really want to understand what's the most important or valuable thing you've learned from a mentor oh there's so many to think about um i will say i have two that that stand out as being um most most formative for me um so one is when i was a, a new attorney um i was struggling because i had a, a a person i was reporting to who was particularly difficult and um very kind of uh, I'll refer to refer to this person as a door slammer screamer, right? Um, you know, easily triggered and angry and everything was my fault. And I went to a mentor and uh, talked with her and she said, you know what, Gwen, the thing is throughout your career, you're going to find people who think you're either the smartest person they've ever met or the stupidest person they've ever met. And you know what, neither one of them are right. The most important thing is how you think about yourself and you know what you uh what you value about your own performance and skill set so don't listen to the haters but don't listen to the ones who are heaping praise on you either because both of them are wrong <laughs> the only ones who are the only one who's really right about what you you know how well you're performing and whether you're achieving your goals is you so that was a great piece of advice uh, and something i've clung to kind of throughout my throughout my career uh, and the other one is more personal, which is um, I, I have, I don't know, I, I kind of refer to them sometimes as my, uh, my own kind of personal board of directors. It's a, it's a small group of, of people who've known me for a very long time who I rely on for advice uh, and counsel. And they're all uh, mentors of mine and, and I am of theirs as well. And I had one of them tell me once that um, 
I needed to be aware that the level of um, transparency that I'm comfortable with, with people, mm-hmm. uh, is not something that other people necessarily are, and that I should be prepared to, to adjust kind of my levels of relationship with different people and be okay with that and not take it as a personal indictment. So for years, I felt like, well, this person doesn't want to be close to me because they don't like me, or this person won't be very vulnerable with me because they're angry at me or, and everything was my fault. And I've now realized, no, it's not. In fact, it's different levels of of comfort with different levels of vulnerability. And that's perfectly appropriate. And that's been uh, a piece of advice from a mentor I've taken with me throughout my personal life as well. That's wonderful advice. Yeah, I think so too. Terrific. Thank you so much for joining us today. And we hope that you all tune in to the next Mentor Corps.